Chapter number three of A Marriage at Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. A Marriage at Sea by W. Clark Russell. Chapter three. At Sea. It was some time after three o'clock in the morning when Grace fell asleep. The heave of the vessel had entirely conquered emotion. She had had no smiles for me. The handkerchief she held to her mouth had kept her lips sealed. But her eyes were never more beautiful than now, with their languishing expression of suffering, and I could not remove my gaze from her face, so exceedingly sweet did she look as she lay, with the rich bronze of her hair glittering, as though gold-dusted, to the lamplight, and her brow showing with an ivory gleam through the tresses which shadowed it in charming disorder. She fell asleep at last breathing quietly, and I cannot tell how it comforted me to find her able to sleep, for now I might hope it would not take many hours of rest to qualify her as a sailor. In all this time that I had been below refreshing her brow and attending to her, and watching her as a picture of which my sight could never weary, the breeze had freshened and the yacht was heeling to it, and taking the wrinkled sides of the swell that grew heavier as we widened the offing with the shearing, hissing sweep that one notices in a steam-launch. Grace lay on a lee-locker, and as the weather-rolls of the little spitfire were small, there was no fear of my sweetheart slipping off the couch. She rested very comfortably, and slept as soundly as though in her own bed in times before she had known me, before I had crossed her path to set her heart beating, to trouble her slumbers to give a new impulse to her life, and to color with hues of shadows and brightness what had been little more than the drab of virgin monotony. These poetical thoughts occurred to me as I stood gazing at her a while to make sure that she slept. Then, finding the need of refreshment, I softly mixed myself a glass of soda and brandy, and lighting a pipe in the companionway, that the fumes of the tobacco might not taint the cabin atmosphere, I stepped on to the deck. And now I must tell you here that my dandy little yacht, the Spitfire, was so brave, staunch, and stout a craft, that though I am no lover of the sea in its angry moods, and especially have no relish for such experiences as one is said to encounter, for instance, off Cape Horn, yet such was my confidence in her seaworthiness, I should have been quite willing to sail round the world in her, had the necessity for so tedious an adventure have arisen. She had been built as a smack, but was found too fast for trolling, and the owner offered her as a bargain. I purchased and re-equipped her, little dreaming that she was one day to win me a wife. I improved her cabin accommodation, handsomely furnished her within, caused her to be sheathed with yellow metal to the bends, and to be handsomely embellished with gilt at the stern and quarters, according to the gingerbread taste of twenty or thirty years ago. She had a fine, bold spring or rise of deck forward, with abundance of beam which warranted her for stability, but her submerged lines were extraordinarily fine, and I cannot recollect the name of a pleasure-craft afloat at that time which I should not have been willing to challenge, whether for a fifty- or a thousand-mile race. She was rigged as a dandy, a term that no reader, I hope, will want me to explain." I stood, cigar in mouth, looking up at her canvas and round upon the dark scene of the ocean, whilst, the light of the skylight being a little way open, I was almost within arm's reach of my darling, whose lightest call would reach my ear, or least movement take my eye. 
The stars were dim away over the port quarter, and I could distinguish the outlines of clouds hanging in dusky, vaporous bodies over the black mass of the coast, dotted with lights where Boulogne lay, with the Cape Rinet lantern windily flashing on high from its shoulder of land that blended in a dye of ink with the gloom of the horizon. There were little runs of froth in the ripples of the water, with now and again a phosphoric glancing that instinctively sent the eye to the dimness in the western circle, as though it were sheet-lightning there which was being reflected. Broad abeam was a large, gloomy collier, reaching in for Boulogne Harbour. She showed a gaunt, ribbed, and healing figure with her yards almost fore and aft, and not a hint of life aboard her in the form of light or noise. I felt sleepless, never so broad awake, despite this business now in hand that had robbed me for days past of hour after hour of slumber, so that I may safely say I had scarcely enjoyed six hours of solid sleep in as many days. Caudel still grasped the tiller, and forward was one of the men restlessly but noiselessly pacing the little forecastle. The bleak hiss of the froth at the yacht's forefoot threw a shrewd bleakness into the light pouring of the offshore wind, and I buttoned up my coat as I turned to Caudel, though excitement worked much too hotly in my soul to suffer me to feel conscious of the cold. "'This breeze will do, Caudel, if it holds,' said I, approaching him by a stride or two that my voice should not disturb Grace. "'Aye, sir, it is as pretty a little air as could be asked for. What is that light out away yonder? The varn, your honour. "'And where are you carrying the little ship to?' said I, looking at the illuminated disk of compass card that swung in the short brass binnacle under his nose. "'Ye see the course, Mr. Barclay, west by north. That'll fetch Beachy Head for us. Afterwards a small shift of the helm will put the channel under our bows, keeping the British ports as we go along handy, so that if your honour don't like the look of the bariometer, why, there's always a harbour within an easy sail.' I was quite willing that Caudel should heave the English land into sight. He had been bred in coasters, and knew his way about the mere swell of the mud, as the sailors say, whereas put him in the middle of the ocean with nothing but his sextant to depend upon, and I do not know that I should have felt very sure of him. He coughed, and seemed to mumble to himself as he ground upon the piece of tobacco in his cheek, then said, "'And how's the young lady a-doin', sir?' The motion of the vessel rendered her somewhat uneasy, but she is now sleeping. I took a peep as I said this, to be certain, and saw her resting stirless, and in the posture I had left her in. No skylight ever framed a prettier picture of a sleeping girl. Her hair looked like beaten gold in the elusive lamplight, and to my eye, coming from the darkness of the sea and the great height of star-laden gloom, the sleeping form in the tender radiance of the interior was for the moment as startling as a vision, as something of unreal loveliness. I turned to Caudel. "'Sorry to hear she don't feel well, sir,' he exclaimed. "'But this here sea-sickness, I'm told, soon passes.' "'I want her to be well,' said I. "'I wish her to enjoy the run-down channel. We must not go ashore if we can help it, or one special object I have in mind will be defeated.' "'Shall I keep the yacht well out, then, sir?' No need to draw in, if so be. No, no, sight the coast, Caudel, and give us a view of the scenery. And now, whilst I have the chance, let me thank you heartily for the service you have done me to-night. 
I should have been helpless without you, and what other man of my crew, what other man of any sort, indeed, could I have depended upon? Oh, don't mention it, Mr. Barclay, sir. I beg and entreat you that you won't mention it, sir, he replied, as though affected by my condescension. You're a gentleman, sir, begging your pardon, and that means a man of honour, and when you told me how things stood, why, put in all duty on one side. If so be as there can be such a thing as duty and jobs which aren't shipshape and proper, why, I says, of course, I was willing to be of use. Not that I myself have much confidence in these here elopements, saving your presence. I've got a grown-up darter myself in sarvice and if when she gets married she don't make a straight course for the meeting-house, why, then I shall have to talk to her, as she's never yet been talked to. But in this job, he swung off from the tiller to expectorate over the rail, what the young lady's been and gone and done is what I should say to my darter or any other young woman, the circumstances being the same. Go thou and you likewise. You see, Cowdell, there was no hope of getting her ladyship's consent. "'No, sir.' "'Then again, consider the cruelty of sending the young lady to a Roman Catholic school for no fairer or kinder reasons than to remove her out of my way, and to compel her, if possible, by ceaseless teasing and exhortation, and God best knows what other devices, to change her faith.' "'I understand, sir, and I am of opinion it was quite time that their little game was stopped.' "'Lady Amelia Roscoe is a Roman Catholic and very bigoted.' Ever since she first took charge of Miss Bellasis she has been trying to convert her, and by methods, I assure you, by no means uniformly kind. So you was a sayin, sir. It pleased me to be thus candid with this sailor. Possibly there was in me a little disturbing sense of the need of justifying myself, though I believed the most acidulated moralist could not have glanced through the skylight without feeling that I heartily deserved forgiveness. "'But supposin', Mr. Barclay, sir,' continued Cowdell, "'that you'd a changed your religion and become a papist, "'would her ladyship still a gone on objectin' to ye?' "'Supposing? "'Yes, Cowdell, she would have gone on objecting even then. "'There are family feelings, family traditions, "'mixed up in her dislike of me. "'You shall have the yarn before we go ashore. "'It is right that you should know the whole truth.' Until I make that young lady below my wife, she is as much under your care as under mine. That was agreed on between us, and that you know. That I do know, and shall remember as much for her sake as for yourn and for mine, answered the honest fellow, with a note of deep feeling in his voice. There's only one consideration, Mr. Barclay, that worrits me. I understood you to say, sir, that your honour has a cousin who's a clergyman that's willing to marry ye right away out of hand. We must get the consent of the aunt first. There it is, said he, smiting the head of the tiller with his clenched fist. Suppose she don't consent. We have taken this step, I said softly, always afraid of disturbing my sweetheart, to force her to consent. Do you think she can refuse, man, after she hears of this elopement? this midnight rope-ladder business and the days we hope to spend together on this little spitfire? Still, Mr. Barclay, supposin' she do, sir, you'll forgive me for sayin' of it, but supposin' she do, sir. No good in supposing, Cowdell, said I, suppressing a little movement of irritation. No good in obstructing one's path by suppositions stuck up like so many fences to stop one from advancing. Our first business is to get to Penzance. 
By his motions and the uneasy shifting of his posture he discovered himself ill at ease, but his respectfulness would not allow him to persevere with his inquiries. "'Cadell,' said I, "'you may ask me any questions you please. The more you show yourself really anxious on behalf of Miss Bellisis, the more I shall honour you. Don't fear. I shall never interpret your concern for her into a doubt of me. If Lady Amelia absolutely refuses her sanction, what then remains but to place Miss Bellisis with my sister and wait till she comes of age?' So speaking, and now considering that I had said enough, I threw the end of my cigar overboard and went below. It was daylight shortly before six, but the grey of the dawn brightened into sunrise before Grace awoke. Throughout the hours she had slept without a stir. From time to time I had dozed, chin on breast, opposite to where she lay. The wind had freshened, and the yacht was lying well down to it, swarming along, taking buoyantly the little sea that had risen, and filling the breeze that was musical with the harmonies of the taut rigging, with the swift noise of spinning and seething water. The square of heavens showing in the skylight overhead wore a hard, marble, windy look, but the pearl-coloured streaks of vapour floated high and motionless, and I was yachtsman enough to gather from what I saw that there was nothing more in all this than a fresh channel morning, and a sweep of southerly wind that was driving the spitfire along her course some eight or nine miles in the hour. As the misty pink flash of the upper limb of the rising sun struck the skylight and made a very prison of the little cabin, with its mirrors and silver lamp, the glass and brass ornamentation, Grace opened her eyes. She opened them straight upon me, and whilst I might have counted ten she continued to stare as though she were in a trance. Then the blood flooded her pale cheeks, her eyes grew brilliant with astonishment, and she sat erect bringing her hands to her temples as though she struggled to recollect her wits. However, it was not long before she rallied, though for some few moments her face remained empty of intelligence. "'Why, Grace, my darling,' I cried, "'do you not know where you are?' "'Yes, now I do,' she answered. "'But I thought I had gone mad when I first awoke and looked around me.' "'You have slept soundly, but then you are a child,' said I. "'Whereabouts are we, Herbert?' "'I cannot tell for sure,' I answered. "'Out of sight of land, anyway. "'But where you are, Grace, you ought to know. "'Now don't sigh. We are not here to be miserable.' A few caresses, and then her timid glances began to show like the old looks in her. I asked her if the movement of the yacht rendered her uneasy, and after a pause, during which she considered with a grave face, she answered no. She felt better.' she must try to stand and so saying she stood up on the swaying deck and smiling with her fine eyes fastened upon my face poised her figure in a floating way full of grace far above dancing to my fancy her gaze went to a mirror and i easily interpreted her thoughts though for my part i found her beauty improved by her roughened hair there is your cabin said i the door is behind those curtains take a peep and tell me if it pleases you there were flowers in it to sweeten the atmosphere, and every imaginable convenience that it was possible for a male imagination to hit upon in its efforts in a direction of this sort. She praised the little berth and closed the door with a smile at me that made me conjecture I should not hear much more from her about our imprudence, the impropriety of our conduct, what Mademoiselle would think, and what the schoolgirls would say. 
though she was but a child as i would tell her i too was but a boy for the matter of that and her smile and the look she gave me and her praise of the little berth i had fitted up for her made me feel so boyishly joyous that like a boy as i was though above six feet tall i fell a-whistling out of my high spirits and then kissed the feather in her hat and her gloves which lay upon the table afterwards springing in a couple of bounds on deck where i stood roaring out for bobby allett a seaman named job crew was at the helm two others named jim foster and dick files were washing down the decks i asked crew where caudell was and he told me he had gone below to shave i bawled again for bobby allett and after a moment or two he rose through the forecastle hatch he was a youth of about fifteen who had been shipped by Caudell to serve as steward or cabin boy and to make himself generally useful besides. As he approached I eyed him with some misgiving, though I had found nothing to object to in him before, but the presence of my sweetheart in the cabin had, I suppose, tempered my taste to a quality of lover-like fastidiousness, and this boy Bobby to my mind looked very dirty. "'Do you mean to wait upon me in those clothes?' said i they're the best i have master he answered staring at me with a pair of round eyes out of a dingy skin that was certainly not clarified by the number of freckles and pimples which decorated it you can look smarter than that if you like i said to him i want breakfast right away off and let foster drop his bucket and go to work to boil and cook but tell captain caudal also that before you lay aft you must clean yourself polish your face, brush your hair and shoes, and if you haven't got a clean shirt you must borrow one. The boy went forward. Pity, said I, thinking aloud rather than talking, as I stepped to the binnacle to mark the yacht's course, that Caudel should have shipped such a dingy-skinned chap as that fellow for cabin use. It's all along of his own doing, sir, said Job Crew. How? You mean he won't wash himself? "'No, sir, it's along of smoking.' "'Smoking!' I exclaimed. "'Yes, sir, I know his father. He's a waterman. His father told me that that there boy Bobby saved up and then laid out all he'd got upon a meerschaum pipe for to colour it. He kept all on a smoking day arter day and night arter night. But his father says to me it was no go, sir. Instead of his colouring the pipe, the pipe coloured him.' and his wains have run nothing but tobacco-juice ever since. I burst into a laugh and went to the rail to take a look around. We might have been in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, so boundless did the spreading waters look. Not a blob or film of coast on any hand of us broke the flawless sweep of the green circle of channel waters. There was a steady breeze off the port beam, and the yacht, with every cloth which she carried on her, was driving through it as though she were in tow of some steamboat. The scene was full of life. On one bow was an English smack, as gaudy in the misty brilliance of the sunshine as an aquatic parrot, with her red mainsail and brown mizzen, and white foresail topping, aslant, the gloomy black hull from whose sides would break from time to time a sullen white flash, like the leap of fire from a cannon's mouth, as the swing of the sea swerved the black wet timbers to the morning luster. On the other bow was a little bark with a milk-white hull, the French tricolor trembling at her gaff-end, and her canvas looking like shot silk with the play of the shadows in the bright and polished concavities. Past her a big French lugger was hobbling clumsily over the short seas, 
and farther off still a tall black steamboat brig-rigged her portholes glittering as though the whole length of her was studded with brilliance was clumsily thrusting through it against the hard blue marble of the sky the horizon stood firm making one think of the rim of a green lens broken in places by a leaning sail a shadowy parallax shaft the channel throbbed in glory under the sun the full spirit of the sea was in the morning and the wide and spreading surface of waters gave as keen an oceanic significance to the inspiration of the moment as though the eye that centred the scene gazed from the heart of a south pacific solitude i stood leaning over the bulwarks humming in air never had my heart beaten with so exquisite a sense of gladness and of happiness as now possessed it i was disturbed in a reverie of love in which was mingled the life and beauty of the scene i surveyed by the arrival of caudel he was varnished with soap and blue with recent shaving but there was no trace of the sleepless hours i had forced him to pass in the little sea-blue eyes which glittered under his somewhat ragged thatched brow he was a man of about fifty years of age his dark hair was here and there of an iron grey and a roll of short-cut whiskers met in a bit of a beard upon the bone in his throat he carried a true salt-water air in his somewhat bowed legs and in his slow motions and in his trick of letting his arms hang up and down as though they were pump-handles his theory of dress was that what kept out the cold also kept out the heat and so he never varied his attire which was composed of a thick double-breasted waistcoat a long pilot-cloth coat a scotch cap very roomy pilot-cloth trousers a worsted cravat and fisherman's stockings i exchanged a few words with him about the boy bobby inquired the situation of the yacht and after some talk of this kind during which i gathered that he was taking advantage of the breeze and shaping a somewhat more westerly course than he had first proposed so that he did not expect to make the english coast much before three or four o'clock in the afternoon i went below to refresh myself after the laborious undertaking of the night on quitting my berth i found the boy bobby laying the cloth for breakfast and grace seated on a locker watching him her face was pale but its expression was without uneasiness she had put on her hat and on seeing me exclaimed herbert dear take me on deck the fresh air may revive me and she looked at the boy and the cloth he was laying with a pout full of meaning i at once took her by the hand and conducted her through the hatch she passed her arm through mine to balance herself and then sent her eyes bright with nervousness and astonishment round the sea breathing swiftly where is the land she asked behind the ocean my love but we shall be having a view of the right side of these waters presently what a little boat she exclaimed running her gaze over the yacht is it not dangerous to be in so small a vessel out of sight of land bless your dear heart no think of the early navigators of course mademoiselle taught you all about the early navigators when shall we reach penzance supposing the wind to blow fair and briskly in three or four days three or four days she exclaimed and glancing down at herself she added of course you know herbert that i have only the dress i am wearing it will last you till we get ashore said i laughing and then you shall buy everything you want which of course will be more than you want i shall send said she to mademoiselle championnet for my boxes certainly when we are married all your presents particularly the darling little watch are in those boxes herbert 
Everything shall be recovered to the uttermost hapworth, my pet. I observed Caudel, who stood a little forward of the companion, gazing at her with an expression of shyness and admiration. I told her that he was the captain of the yacht, that he was the man I had introduced to her last night, and begged her to speak with him. She coloured a rose-red, but bade him good morning none the less, accompanying the words with an inclination of her form, the graceful and easy dignity of which somehow made me think of the movement of a bough heavily foliaged, set curtsying by the summer wind. "'I hope, miss,' said Cowdell, pulling off his scotch cap, "'as how I see you well this morning, freed of that there nosy as Mr. Barclay was a-tellin' me you suffered from.' "'I trust to get used to the sea quickly.' The motion of the yacht is not what I like," she answered with her face averted from him, taking a peep at me to observe if I saw that she felt ashamed and would not confront him. He perceived this, too, and, knuckling his forehead, said, "'It's but a little o' the sea ye shall have, miss, if so be it lies in my power to keep this here spitfire a walkin'.' And so speaking he moved off, singing out some idle order as he did so by way of excusing his abrupt departure. "'I wish we were quite alone, Herbert,' said my sweetheart, drawing me to the yacht's rail. "'So do I, my own, but not here, not in the middle of the sea.' "'I did not think of bringing a veil. Your men stare so.' "'And so do I,' said I, letting my gaze sink fair into her eyes which she had upturned to mine. You wouldn't have me rebuke the poor harmless sailor-men for doing what I am every instant guilty of—admiring you, I mean—to the very topmost height of my capacity in that way. But here comes Master Bobby Allett with the breakfast. Herbert, I could not eat for worlds. Are you so much in love as all that? She shook her head and looked at the flowing lines of green water which melted into snow as they came curving with glass-clear backs, to the ruddy streak of the yacht's sheathing. However, the desire to keep her at sea until we could land ourselves close to the spot where we were to be married made me too anxious to conquer the uneasiness which the motion of the vessel excited to humour her. I coaxed and implored and eventually got her below, by dint of talking and engaging her attention, and making her forget herself, so to speak. I managed to betray her into breaking her fast with a cup of tea and a fragment of cold chicken. This was an accomplishment of which I had some reason to feel proud. But then, to be sure, I was in the secret knowing this, that sea nausea is entirely an affair of the nerves, that no sufferer is ill in his sleep, no matter how high the sea may be running, or how unendurable to his waking senses the sky-high capers and abysmal plunges of the craft may be and that the correct treatment for seasickness is not to think of it. In short, I made my sweetheart forget to feel uneasy. She talked, sipped her tea, she ate, and then she looked better, and indeed owned that she felt so. End of chapter 3